Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is the Honourable Albert Isola, Minister for Digital and Financial Services in Gibraltar, a financial centre for which he is the primary ambassador. Gibraltar has in the last few years built a global reputation as a robustly regulated but still congenial domicile for digital financial services companies, including cryptocurrency funds, insure techs, and online gaming firms. Albert, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Dominic. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, the right place to start is cryptocurrencies. What is the stance of Gibraltar towards cryptocurrencies, by which I mean Bitcoin, Ether, especially in terms of investor protection? Well, having that last comment you made on investor protection at the forefront of our thinking and our philosophy, um, when we started looking at this space um, some seven years ago now, um, we set up a working group to look at whether Gibraltar wanted to be involved in this space. If it did, how, uh, and how we could possibly regulate it. And if we were to do that, who would regulate it? Would it be the traditional financial services regulator, or would we have another regulator uh, looking at the space? And the conclusions we came to after three years of consultation with a working group, which involved private sector firms and involved regulators and former regulators, we came to the conclusion that we could do it and we could do it safely. But it wasn't focusing so much on the cryptocurrencies themselves as to the people that ran these businesses. Uh, you will be familiar with traditional financial services. We look very much at the fitness and propriety of the individuals that are doing the business. Uh, we look at the business plan as to whether it's achievable. We look at the corporate governance structures and whether they will work to deliver to the consumer the safety net that they require. And so we looked at all the different areas that you would do normally and how we could implement those, adapting them to a fit-for-purpose regime for the cryptocurrency space and DLT in particular. Uh, and then we came uh, in 2017 in October and we published the regulations that we sought to enact what we call the DLT framework, which is a legal and regulatory framework, basically banning um, anybody in that space unless you were licensed. So we introduced a licensing regime uh, which uh, enabled people to do the business from Gibraltar in a way that we felt was safe. Um, again, putting the consumer at the forefront of our thinking in a licensable and regulated manner. Um, and since that time, uh, if I fast forward the clock to today, uh, we've now got some 14 good quality businesses, all regulated, all supervised, uh, and working from our jurisdiction, which is what we set out to do when we started looking at this uh, with that working group uh, many, many years ago. Now, I'm glad you mentioned the regulatory framework, and I'll, I'll come back to that uh, in just a, a minute. But before I do, could I ask you about, about cryptocurrency funds? Gibraltar has become reasonably well-established cryptocurrency fund domicile. Uh, a PwC report I saw suggested you had 10% of, of assets under management in, in cryptocurrency funds. We mentioned a minute ago investor protection. How do you protect um, investors from such a volatile uh, asset class? I know you've had this experienced investor fund model for quite a long time. Has that been a, I heard everything you said about looking at the people running these businesses, um, but has, was the experienced investor fund model, the EIF model, a useful precedent when you came to thinking, well, who should be allowed to buy and invest in these things? 
I think when you look at everything that we do, whether it's in gaming, whether it's financial services, whether it's in the DLT framework or indeed in the EIF regime, we look at people and we look at quality of the people who want to do this business. So, for example, the experienced investor fund regime requires that two of the directors are approved by the regulator. Same principle. Um, if we're going to have people dealing with other people by way of business, um, then we need to be comfortable that the people doing that business are known to us, are in the jurisdiction, so that if there's anything happening that we don't like, we're able to uh, police it uh, and the periphery. Um, so the EIF regime also requires the fund to have other functions uh, within Gibraltar. The administrator, for example, is W in Gibraltar. We require um, a legal opinion ensuring that the people investing uh, in that fund are experienced investors. So they're not uh, a chap who's, who's, who's earning two bob a week. They've got to have, uh, there's, a, there's a criteria that we set for them um, in terms of having available to them on 100,000 for, for involvement or they are experienced in the investing in trade. Um, so th there is a set criteria preventing um, the average consumer from being able to put money into one of these funds. These funds are for experienced investors. There are similar regimes in many different jurisdictions. So in addition to that qualifying who can invest, we also control who controls and manages these funds uh, through the regulator. So um, we, we believe that it's a vehicle that has worked well in the past um, and, and allowing uh, crypto funds to be set up in this way follows the philosophy and the thinking that we have uh, um, implemented before and is consistent with how we look generally at regulating. Now, you mentioned uh, a minute ago the, the regulatory framework for, for DLT or, or blockchain. That was passed into law in January 2018. It made you one of the first jurisdictions actually to put such a law uh, in place. You mentioned it's attracted 14 uh, businesses of the type you'd hope to attract. So if I said to you, has the law fulfilled your expectations in attracting the type of businesses you want to Gibraltar, would your answer that to be yes or a qualified yes, or do you look forward to more coming? I think our, our history, um, if you look at the, the, the online gaming space, um, we started that 25 years ago. Um, and the philosophy that the government had at the time when they did this was to say, we only want quality firms. We're going to set the bar high in terms of who's going to be allowed in. They're going to have to be able to show experience and knowledge in the area. They're going to be regulated, and the mind of management is going to be here. <clears throat> Excuse me. That thinking has led to 15 firms being in Gibraltar. They're all household firms, household names. Some of them are large PLCs. Um, they employ 3,500 people in Gibraltar. They are 24-7 businesses, and they are all quality firms regulated with mind of management in Gibraltar. Those firms account for around 75% of the online gaming business being conducted in the United Kingdom. So <clears throat> we achieved what we wanted to do safely. In the, the DLT framework, we set out with exactly the same philosophy. We only wanted quality firms. We wanted the mind of management had to be in Gibraltar and they have to be regulated. And likewise, um, that's exactly what we did with the same thinking and the same philosophy. If you're, going to be, if you're going to be innovative, which we believe we are, and you're going to be agile, there has to be a basic philosophy that dictates 
on what basis you're going to be implementing these new uh, uh, niche markets. And those are with the consumer at the forefront of our mind to do things as best and as safely as we can. And so regulation is a big part of that, obviously. So am I happy today after four years of being in this space with what we've been able to achieve? Yes, we are. Um, do we think there's more to do? Yes, there is. As you know, uh, this technology and this, this uh, sector moves extraordinarily quickly which is why when we produced the legislation, we did it on the basis of core principles as opposed to the traditional boxing of, of, um, of legislation for insurance, Solvency 2 box, uh, investment firms, MIFID 2. This is more discretionary put in the hands of the regulator to enable them to police the space and the periphery of the space, to ensure that we are able to keep up with the speed of the development of this technology. And so, yes, we're happy, yes, it's worked, and it's given us sufficient scope to be able to move with the technology as it's done since 2018 significantly. Um, and so those nine core principles will soon become 10, because if we are gonna remain fit for purpose for the reasons I've just explained, uh, we need to be alive to changes. And the 10th core principle will be in the area of market abuse and market manipulation. Uh, we set up a working group these past 12 months, and we are going to be create, we're going to be launching a very innovative uh, approach to market manipulation and market abuse. Um, and I very much hope to be able to announce that uh, and, 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 and make it public uh, in the coming weeks, maybe month, once we've gone through the ongoing consultation period with the existing operators in Gibraltar. Now, you mentioned that among the businesses you've attracted is enough to cover 75% of the e-gaming uh, market in the, in, in the UK. Now, there are obvious links between uh, gaming and, and cryptocurrency, by which I mean many of the developers of, of decentralized finance and uh, cryptocurrency come from a, a video gaming background, if you like, as opposed to a, to a um, st well, staking uh, is an example of them applying that knowledge tokens is another example of them applying something they're familiar with from what they do is there some kind of opportunity somewhere in there uh, as you say it's a very fast moving sector for gibraltar to uh, exploit the kind of overlap between the world from which cryptocurrency and DeFi has emerged and your own experience in working with with gamers albeit in a slightly different sector i think there's no question that there are synergies and there are opportunities i, I think that's that's absolutely right um, we are in the fortunate position that we regulate both. So we regulate the gaming firms and we regulate the financial services and the DLT firms in particular. So we are very well placed um, to be able to have both regulators working together with firms that want to do something in that space to enable it to happen as safely as it possibly can. Um, what what I, I guess we would be uh, cautious with is having external blockchain firms uh, with existing regulated gambling firms. So we, we will work our way through that, but understanding both areas as we do, uh, I believe, yes, we are well-placed to, to be able to encourage further innovation with our online gaming firms, uh, working with the regulators of both gaming and uh, DLT. Yes, absolutely. Now, you mentioned that uh, you, you've been very clear, in fact, that you look at the character of the, of the people, you look at the background of the people, it's about people. 
Uh, you've also emphasized that the, the blockchain regulatory regime is not about detailed prescription, it's about principles. Can I ask you how difficult it was actually to come up with this regulatory framework? After all, there can't have been many precedents for you to work off in this whole area of, of, of blockchain DLT. And have you found that that focus on uh, principles in particular has enabled the law to evolve? Has it changed over time, over the last three years? The, the short answer is yes. Um, it's exactly why we did it. Um, and we believe now, having had the benefit of four years almost, uh, we believe it was absolutely the right thing to do. When we started off, um, I don't mind telling you, seven years ago, um, the first working group was called a cryptocurrency working group. And the intention originally at the very outset was to regulate cryptocurrencies. Um, and the fast conclusion that we came to during that period was that that wouldn't work and it couldn't work. Um, and that what we actually had to do was be more traditional in our focus by regulating people that use the technology um, as a store of value or, or to transfer that, that digital value to others by way of business. And so you're providing a service. So much more in the traditional financial services uh, uh, approach. And that's what brought us to people. Um, don't worry about regulating the cryptocurrency. Don't worry about regulating the technology per se itself, but regulate the people that are using the technology uh, by way of business for, the, for, for uh, holding or storing um, digital uh, store of value for a third party. So we think that it was right. Uh, we think that the way that we implemented it was right. Um, we are constantly looking at what we do and how we do to see how we can make it better. Um, hence the 10th core principle, which I've, I've mentioned previously. Um, and, and we think that the approach we've taken has been followed by others in, in different ways. Um, and, and yes, we were starting with a blank piece of paper. There was no precedent. There wasn't the ability to look at what others were doing to see if we could learn from that. We were very much um, doing something from fresh, from new. Uh, and I'm very pleased to say that four years after, we've refreshed the guidance notes from the, the experience that we've had since they were originally um, incorporated. Uh, and we continue to look at the space. Uh, and, I, and I've said publicly before that if we, some, if we see somebody doing it better, we're not going to be shy from learning from them and adapting some of the ideas that they've come to improve the level of regulation that we have ourselves. Because uh, if, if this sector is going to evolve and grow, regulation is a key part of it. And I think that is the conclusion many organizations and countries have come to. If you're going to have institutional finance in this sector, it will only be on the basis that that sector is regulated. Um, and so it's been no surprise to us that the FATF and the European Union uh, and others have moved in this direction, and I think will continue to move in the direction. Um, so I'm, I'm very pleased that we did what we did and the way that we did it, I think it's proven itself to have worked well. As you've said, it's a, it's a fast evolving sector. Back in 2017, when you were crafting that original framework, uh, initial coin offerings were, were all the rage. Now they have obviously survived, and now we just call them uh, decentralized finance or, or DeFi. Do you see these latest massive developments, if you like, both DeFi and uh, non-fungible tokens, NFTs, do you see both of those sectors as opportunities for Gibraltar? I, I think they are. 
Um, and I think to an extent with the NFTs, which you could consider them to be a different form of token, which we already provide for. Um, we were the first jurisdiction, I believe, to extend the Proceeds of Crime Act, the POCA, to the issuers of tokens. So anybody issuing tokens had to have an MLRO and had to have the normal compliance requirements in terms of the people subscribing for these tokens. But DeFi, um, DeFi is something that we are looking at with, with uh, the, the um, Gantt, which is the Gibraltar Association for New Technologies, to look at how we should be approaching it philosophically and, and then transcending that into uh, a regulatory framework. Um, we believe in innovation. Um, what we're not prepared to do is to allow people to bypass our regulation uh, on the back of DeFi, um, if that makes sense to you. So when people are coming to us with saying that this is out of the scope of your uh, regulatory framework, my immediate response will be, no, it's not. And if you think it is, we will change the legislation to make it absolutely clear that it's not. Um, so whatever it is that we do in the area of DeFi, and as I've said before, we are looking at it, we will do in what we believe to be a safe and regulated uh, uh, manner. Um, and that throws challenges, of course it does. Um, but, but we are keen to continue to innovate. We are keen to welcome DeFi and NFT, but in a way that we believe enhances the reputation of the jurisdiction and doesn't pull away from it. So the short answer is yes, but safely. You mentioned Gantt, this uh, Gibraltar Association for New Technology. How exactly does that does that relationship work? Do you look to them to tell you what's going on, uh, to help you adapt legislation, as you say, safely to, to new developments? Is it a day-to-day -day thing or is it a formal structure? How, how does it work between the government and Gantt? Everything that we do is in tandem with the private sector and with the regulator. So one of the keys to our success in each of the areas that we've worked in has been this public-private sector partnership. Um, so it's the government working with the private sector and with the regulator around the table, talking through what we can and can't do, what we should and shouldn't do, understanding the risks, mitigating those risks, and then moving forward in the safest manner possible, always seeking to enhance but protect the reputation of the jurisdiction. So Gantt is um, an association that we drove the formation of, because obviously when we started this um, in 2018, we had a working group that helped the thinking between the development of the DLT legal and regulatory framework, which involved people from private sector or from all over the world. Um, the 10th core principle working group has been people from all over the world. We've had lawyers from the States, uh, experts from all different parts of, of the world, from Asia, from, from Europe, from Gibraltar, working together to help us frame the thinking. So Gantt um, was a local association that we uh, set up originally to invite our licensees and the lawyers, the accountants, and the different experts that there were in this space to come together to work with government. So the prime function of Gantt is to support government in our thinking, and then also support our, our, our thinking in terms of business development and marketing, because we do that all together. So I have a meeting with Gantt next week. Uh, we're going to be talking about DeFi. Um, I asked them last time we met a month ago to come back with some of their initial thoughts, and they're doing that. So we will be going through that next week. Um, and they are a very significant part of the thinking. As government, we don't understand the industry as well as the industry understands itself. They understand the opportunities, they understand the challenges, and they understand the risks. And I rely on them uh, to help brief us 
and help guide us in the way that the government policy evolves. So it really is teamwork. Um, they're an important part of our thinking, uh, and I very much welcome my engagement with them. I don't believe that neither I nor anybody in my team knows anything or everything about this, this sector or the space. And so they are very important partners of government in how we, we work in this area and every other area. We do exactly the same in insurance. We do exactly the same in online gaming. In every single one of the areas that we work, we work very closely with the private sector, with these um, um, groups. Uh, and they all form part of what's called the Gibraltar Finance Centre Council, with whom I meet once a month as well. Yeah. You're making it sound as if the, the regulator in the government is, if nothing else, accessible to people looking to do things. Is that something you regard as a strength of the Gibraltar regime? I, I think can get, uh, you, can get, you can get to see the regulator very quickly or get to see a government I think it's critical. very quickly. Yeah. I think it's essential uh, that the, the, both the regulator and the government are accessible to firms wanting to work. They are our stakeholders. Um, and one of the, the, the key areas that we've worked on with the regulator is to have that access. I expect the regulator to answer an email uh, within a professional period of time. I expect the regulator to engage with firms uh, in, a, in a respectful manner. I don't believe that a regulator as a school teacher is going to help the firm to be comfortable and confident in engaging with a regulator. Uh, and I believe that if a firm has a problem, the first thing it needs to do is engage with the regulator to talk about it. If the firm is going to seek to hide it from the regulator for fear of consequences, then we are not in a good place. And so that accessibility is critical in the establishment of that business at the outset, when they should have face-to-face -face meetings as often as possible to look at them in the eyes and to see what kind of people they are. And also when there's a problem, to be able to sit with them and work their way through that problem. Um, so at both ends of that spectrum, access is critical. Um, and so, yes, it is a very key part of the benefit of a small jurisdiction. Uh, you know, it's no secret that small jurisdictions are more agile. Our agility is possible because our firms engage with us and with the regulator um, at every juncture. And, and it, it's our job to make sure that that is open, accessible and functioning. Um, and I always tell the Finance Centre Council, the minute you have a problem with the regulator, I need to know, because it's my job to ensure that the regulator is accessible. The regulator is independent, of course it is, and it does all the decisions that it has to do are its own. But its interaction and its administrative speed is my job to ensure that they're doing it properly. Um, so I, I, I often uh, uh, engage, I meet with the regulator very often too, so I often engage with them saying, I've heard a complaint about you're taking too long to do this or too long to respond. To me, that's not accept acceptable. Mm -hmm. um, so that is what I call access. And so I, I take it very much on my shoulders to ensure that the firms have access to them. Everything else is obviously between the firm and, and the regulator to deal with. Yeah, it's interesting to reflect that accessibility also leads to openness on the part of the, the regulated firms. Now, you, you mentioned... Uh, in the context of, of DeFi and uh, NFTs, tokens. And one asset class which has emerged as a potentially ripe area for tokenization is funds. Now, Gibraltar has built up for various reasons, uh, quite a sizable fund business. Many of those funds are listed, so they're open to institutional investors. Do you see the private fund business as an opportunity to get a 
tokenization industry going in Gibraltar? Um, I do, um, but from our discussions with another association, JIFIA, um, who are the funds and uh, an investment association, my discussions with them and, and my very regular meetings with them um, over the past 12 months have very much been focused on how um, they can evolve that business, leveraging on the success of the DLT uh, framework. Um, and we've had a whole host of uh, um, meetings with the regulator, um, again, to be able to do that business safely. Are there synergies? Well, of course there are. Um, is it a coincidence that PwC has ranked us where they have in terms of the, the, the crypto funds? No, of course it's not. Um, we are becoming uh, very well known with a very good reputation uh, in the DLT space. We're attracting very significant players from all around the world who are very well known. Um, of course that helps. Uh, and so it's no surprise to me that uh, fund uh, business is growing, coming from primarily the UK, um, where international law firms are recognizing the ability that Gibraltar has and the knowledge that it has in this space. And so we will continue to grow in that business, uh, again, on the same core philosophy and principles that we can do it safely. Do you see opportunities beyond uh, funds for tokenization? We talk a lot about real estate. We actually see it happening in, in some jurisdictions. We see uh, privately managed assets, uh, precious metals, uh, even um, occasionally public uh, um, listed equities, but also bonds have been identified as a potentially massive market for, for tokenization. What, what are the other opportunities you see beyond your, your fund business to, to start tokenizing? What asset classes are, are top of your, your list of possibilities? I think there are many different opportunities and I think there are many different possibilities. You've mentioned uh, uh, property. Um, you know, I saw... It must be now over two years ago, a Savills uh, brochure, which talked about tokenizing property development in terms of people being able to own a part of that development through a token, which was interchangeable with others uh, and which owned a part of the entire building as opposed to an apartment, a floor or a part through, through a share. Um, so... Translating that to other areas, there's now a lot of emphasis on, on, on environmental and, and, and climate uh, uh, change. Uh, and I see with bonds, as an example, many opportunities arising in that space too. So I think there are very many clever people, much cleverer than I, that have identified the areas uh, which this industry can, can, can plug into uh, through using its structures. Um, and provided that we're doing it in a way that is safe and, and, and has consumers at the forefront of the thinking, then it's something that I will certainly be happy to work with to promote and, and to develop. Um, I've had a meeting this morning with an individual who's looking at the possibility of doing DAOs uh, using some of our existing structures. Um, look, we're happy to look at that again, provided that we do these things safely and, and, and sensibly. Uh, and I uh, will, will continue always to encourage the interaction between the private sector and ourselves and the regulator to see how we can achieve those shared outcomes. Now, Gibraltar has pretty close links to the financial services industry in the, in the UK. How do those links, you have reciprocal access among other things, how do those links work both at the formal level and the informal level? At the formal level, 
um, we work very closely with the Manchester government in the UK and particularly HM Treasury um, on all matters financial services. We've gone through over the past uh, year, since 2016 in particular, um, through the post-Brexit Financial Services Access for Gibraltar. We are the only territory in the entire world that has access to the UK financial services market. Um, so when you get that sort of a privilege, it can only be uh, on, a, on the premise of accepting alignment, which of course we do, and we're very proud of that alignment in terms of, of our financial services legislative and regulatory outcomes basis. So we spent two years working very closely with HMT uh, in looking at alignment of, in specific, the insurance sector. Uh, we came through that. Um, we then, at the same time, by coincidence, we're going through the consolidation of a financial services legislation, the Financial Services Act, which consolidated 80 pieces of the legislation into one. So we did that journey at the same time um, with them, and, and we came out with a piece of legislation which is now active here, uh, which picks up many of the little bits and pieces that we wanted to uh, put into place to ensure that we were aligned uh, with the UK. So with every opportunity comes responsibility. And what we are certainly never going to allow is Gibraltar being a backdoor to the UK financial services market. So we are very proud of our alignment and we are very careful to ensure that that will never happen. And so that means that the, legisl the legislation is constantly under review. It means that our regulatory processes and procedures are constantly under review. It means that we work very closely with HMT uh, at every juncture. We have regulator, very regular engagement with them. And it also means that our regulators work very closely uh, with the UK. Um, so on all the different um, areas of engagement, it's a very good and fruitful relationship. And it's something that we want to preserve and protect uh, mm -hmm. uh, just as much as the UK wants us to preserve and protect. Uh, so. I think at that level, um, we've done extremely well to work as close as we have with them. Uh, at the private sector level, the, the relationship between the firms in the UK and Gibraltar has always been very, very strong. Not just now, but obviously in many, many years of working together um, and passporting under the EU passporting badges, um, we've developed many of those relationships over a long period of time and they continue to be strong. So I think the awareness of the continued access to the UK financial services market uh, has been very positive and the private sector firms are all very alive to that and working within that new framework. The new framework will kick in with the UK passporting in 2024 when the UK Financial Services Act comes into play and between now and then we are working with transitional measures which give us the same passporting we had previously um, before uh, the 31st of December last year when the Brexit arrangements fell away. So we continue to passport on the transitional arrangements and the new ones will come into play on the, in, in January of 2024. So it's an exciting time for our financial services um, sector and I, and I very much look forward to working with them to developing further. So I'm, I'm clear that I understood you correctly. These, these two things you mentioned, this Gibraltar authorization regime, which gives Gibraltar reciprocal access to, to UK financial services and this legislative consolidation, the legislative reform program, I think it's called. Both of those things were uh, initiated because of Brexit, where they needed to, because previously your relationship was governed by um, joint membership of the EU, these had to be kind of reconfigured post-Brexit. Is that right? No. Have I understood that correctly? No, 
No, my apologies. I, I obviously wasn't clear. Um, the legal reform program started before the Brexit referendum was even conceived. Um, uh, so that, that work started a long time before to see how we could come up with a more effective rule book uh, and legislative framework consolidating over 80 pieces of law into the one. The timing was coincidental. So as we were coming to the end of that three-year work um, in bringing that together, Brexit happened. And then that gave us the ability to build into it the lessons we were learning under the negotiations and discussions with HMT on the alignment process. Um, and, and that came together very well. So, so there were two totally different pieces of work which were not related at the beginning, but of course they then overlapped um, as we came to the conclusions of both. Now, as you say, uh, a minute ago, Brexit happened. As you look, look back, and, and obviously Gibraltar had a different view to, to, to a majority of people in, in, in the UK, has Brexit actually created more opportunities than, than problems? As you moved out of this world in which both you and the UK are basically implementing EU regulations, have you started to see more opportunities arising as a result of leaving the European Union? Um, I think the first thing to say is that Gibraltar geographically positioned um, Brexit causes us problems. Um, we have 15,000 people that work in Gibraltar and live in Spain, 9,000 of whom are Spaniards. Um, and they're all very welcome in Gibraltar, but they need to get in and they need to get out. If you divide uh, a, uh, a A380, which probably has... I don't know, three or 400 people in it. Um, it's an awful lot of planes coming in every day and leaving every evening uh, with 15,000 people's worth of them. So that's a problem. And, and, and we are still working towards resolving that problem with the United Kingdom, with the Spanish government and with the European Commission. And those talks are actually ongoing now. If you look at the other areas, financial services, online gaming, we moved very quickly to preserve the business that we had. Um, with the United Kingdom, because obviously we were losing all of the business that we had with the European Union. Um, and that is why passporting into the UK was so critical and so important to us. And that was recognised by Her Majesty's government in the UK very early on. And they moved very quickly to say, don't worry, you will have access. And we then spent the remaining years working with them as to how we put that into place at a practical level. Um, so does that create opportunities? Yes, of course it does, um, because we are the only uh, piece of, of territory in the world that has that access, because that's, that's going to create opportunity. Um, but at the same time, of course, we've lost uh, all the EU passporting business that we had, uh, both in, in gaming, not passporting, but access, and in financial services, passporting under the single market. So that's all gone. Uh, and now we have the focus on the UK and the rest of the world, where the, 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 um, the arrangements that we've entered into now will enable us to prosper. So, yes, there are opportunities by virtue of being the only territory that's able to do that. Um, do they replace? Well, time will tell. Um, have we been okay? Yes, we have. Um, our, our financial services uh, sector and our gaming sector are good entrepreneurs. They will look for opportunities and seek them out and seek to provide those services to clients from all over the world. Um, they've done that before and we'll do that again. But we still have this Brexit risk for us, which is difficult. 
um, and, and challenging, and we hope that the treaty negotiations will succeed and will enable us um, to have a seamless flow through the border, enabling, enabling the people that work here to have access to the jobs that they have here in Gibraltar. Mm -hmm. As you say, uh, there is this ongoing negotiation about access to, to the EU out of the UK, apart from anything else. So we're in this kind of limbo uh, at the moment. But there's one piece of, of European legislation which, which has a, a close bearing on, on crypto assets in particular. That's the, the Markets and Crypto Assets Regulation, MICA. Have you been thinking about um, how you might respond to the eventual implementation of, of MICA? Funnily enough, um, a fair amount of what's in MICA we already do. Um, we regulate more than probably 95% of the um, countries in the world. Um, so our regulatory framework takes us a long way towards what MICA does. What we are doing is looking at MICA to see um, to what extent and how uh, we should be looking at what will happen in 2024 when that framework uh, will come into place, if it does by that time or, or, or not. Uh, we are very much alive to what others are doing. Um, for example, the travel rule, uh, the FATF um, travel rule, we have already implemented. So everything that comes out on AML, we implement. So in Gibraltar, a DLT firm that onboards a client onboards it in the same way as a bank would. They have to comply with all of our AML due diligence source of funds processes. Um, that makes it difficult for firms to do, but if they want to be here, working from here, that's the cost of business here, and, and they have to comply with that too. So MICA is, is putting um, in play many of the uh, regulatory obligations that we already implement. So we, we will work with Gantt and with the regulator to see are there, are there uh, we've already done a form of gap analysis, um, to see what are the things that we may still need to do or not, because we're already doing them. Um, so there isn't much of a gap, if I'm going to be honest, and, and, and we're looking at what we will do um, because MICA will move um, as a result of the discussions that have been ongoing since it was published. Um, so we need to be alive to that. We're very aware of it and, and we are looking at it, yes. Now, one thing MICA has become somewhat notorious for is its hostility to stable coins. Stable coins have become a subject of quite animated discussion, papers from the BIS, the Federal Reserve has has published, or the, the President's Working Group in the US has, has published something. Um, Stablecoins have emerged potentially as a rival for, for bank deposits, and that explains, I suppose, the hostility of MICA towards it. Does, does the Gibraltar government have a view on the desirability or otherwise of stablecoins? I, I think um, our position is that the current regulatory framework captures them. So if anybody was seeking to do anything in that space, they would require regulatory approval um, and they would require full compliance with our framework. Uh, we are having a, a more general discussion on stable coins and on CBDCs, um, which we're also keeping an eye on. Um, and, and that is one of the things that we continue to keep under close review. Um, we haven't issued any policy papers on it uh, and the regulator hasn't issued any guidance on it yet, um, but I'm, I'm sure that we will do in the future. Now, the, the Bank of England is in the vanguard, I suppose, of, of central banks looking to introduce a central bank digital currency. So we're likely to get a sterling CBDC at some point in the next uh, few years. 
Gibraltar obviously has an intensely close relationship with the, with the pound sterling. Are you convinced that a CBDC is going to bring lots of benefits to Gibraltar or is it too soon to say? I think it would and I think it's the future. Um, the question of is when and how. Um, and, and I think those are the questions that remain to be answered. I mean, we expect to have some input into the think tank, which the Bank of England has set up with HMT um, in looking at this. Um, and so I would very much hope that that work will help us to shape our own thinking on it. Um, but the use of this technology originally, is, as we discussed before, was very much financial services based. I think it'll, it'll go into other areas. You mentioned property and you mentioned health. And there are so many other ways in which this technology uh, will evolve and develop. And I think that the interrelationship between that and the CBDC um, is, is obvious and, and will come. Now, Gibraltar has to compete with lots of jurisdictions um, around the planet, and I appreciate this probably varies by the line of business you're in, but I'm thinking here of uh, if, if you're looking to set up your, uh, your blockchain or other financial services business, you know, you might choose between the Channel Islands, Bermuda, BVI, Cayman, Luxembourg, Liechtenstein, Malta, Cyprus, Ireland, you know, and so on. Who do, you, who do you feel yourselves to be competing with to attract the kind of business that you want and as I say, I guess that varies by according to what business line people are in. I don't think we're competing with anyone. I think every jurisdiction is different. And this has always been the same, whether you're offering services in the corporate and trust business, whether you're offering services in the banking business, every bank uh, offers a different kind of service. It's exactly the same with jurisdictions. So um, in my former life as a lawyer, I would... Uh, spend a lot of time traveling around looking at um, different jurisdictions and the different structures that they had and how they operated them. And they were all different. And, and there are horses for courses. There are different businesses that will want to be fully regulated. Some will not want to be regulated at all. Some will have light touch. Every jurisdiction has a different approach, a different philosophy. Um, whether it's in this space or another, like the online gaming space, different jurisdictions have different views. Um, so I don't see any of them as being in competition with us. I see jurisdictions doing things differently for their own reasons. Uh, some countries uh, are keen to introduce CBDCs for different reasons to others. Um, so uh, I see that very much as um, healthy uh, and good for the space. And I say that because I believe that the more jurisdictions that introduce frameworks in this area, the better, because hopefully, we will get to a time when there are a set of international standards that everyone has, which will give more consumer protection than we currently have today. Um, and I think, uh, like in exchange of information, um, you know, there were countries working to provide good exchange of information for a long time. Uh, and it was only until 2008 when the world crash came along that the bigger countries got serious and now basically enforced upon all the other territories, smaller ones included, a framework for exchange of information, which we now all participate in without any problem and without any issue. So my vision for this space is for a set of international standards to evolve, uh, which will be implemented worldwide, uh, which will enable this business to be far better run and far better regulated the world over. So for me, it's not about, it's not about competition, it's about international standards. Uh, and the quicker we get there, the better. Does that same philosophy apply to how you develop 
and how the Gibraltar Financial Services Commission as a regulator actually devises and, and implements regulations. We're going to do what's what's right for us. And if somebody wants to go to some other jurisdiction where they can do something um, which we wouldn't approve of, that's fine. That's not the sort of business we want. So if I said to you, um, is, the, is the Gibraltar Financial Services Commission kind of following models from elsewhere? You've described as open, you've described as accessible, you've, you've talked about, about principles rather than, rather than prescription. Are these things all sui generis to, to Gibraltar? Are these, is, is this very much your philosophy of regulation, provided everyone meets this this global, eventually meets this global minimum set of, of standards? Or is there is there a model which the Gibraltar Financial Services Commission looks to follow? Does it look at the FCA or the SEC or any other regulation? Is it all unique to Gibraltar? I think in the DLT space, it's unique to Gibraltar. Um, we've shared our thinking uh, at the outset before we even implemented the, the framework with uh, other regulators from other parts of the world, um, including the European Commission. Um, we have a very close relationship with the regulators in the UK, as you would expect us to. Um, our legal and regulatory framework is very much aligned. Uh, and so there is a, a very strong link and connection there. In terms of where the, the Financial Services Commission operate within the DLT space, I think, I think the government and the regulator are 100% aligned in terms of the thinking as to where we want to get to and how we get there. Um, and what we have done through legislation is given them the framework for them to implement, uh, but we've been crystal clear um, as to what we want and what we don't want. So any firm that is not, uh, uh, that the regulator does not believe uh, will meet that criteria, I fully expect the regulator to refuse that application. Um, and if you look at what we've done in, in gaming, as an example, um, the gaming regulator has, has turned away many, many, many more applications than the 15 firms that we've got. Um, so we are certainly not scared about turning business away. We do it often and frequently um, because firms sometimes come not fully understanding the extent of what we require. You, you don't get a DLT license in three months or six months. Um, some of the firms have been working with us for 12 and 15 months before they're licensed. It's a very thorough process, which is what we require the regulator to do. Uh, we only want them to approve someone when they are absolutely confident that they meet the criteria that we've set uh, in the legislation. So um, whether other countries follow that approach or not, it's certainly not a light touch. It's, this is a fully fledged, um, uh, fully engaging licensing progress, licensing process and regulatory process afterwards with the supervision that, 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 our, that, that the regulator does. Um, so we're very serious about that. Uh, we're, we're just not uh, going to get into the business of wanting the business and forgiving firms that want to come in because they're particularly uh, attractive uh, if they're not going to meet the, 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 the basis of what the criteria is set. So is it a model for others to follow? I wish I wish it was. Now one area where we do have minimum international standards in place already is, is anti-money laundering, countering the financing of terrorism sanctions screening. And so there's 40 recommendations put out by the Financial Action Task Force, which if I understood you correctly, you you have applied in, in Gibraltar and that anybody looking to take on any type of customer 
has to go through a full customer due diligence process. Do you ever feel, given what you said about international standards, that you're constrained in some way by that? Or actually, are you liberated by standards of that type, those international standards? I think to have those standards is critical. Um, and I think every jurisdiction has to have those standards. I don't think, I don't think we are in any way uh, held back by them um, because to what we apply them to uh, and how we apply them is within our own uh, uh, um, control through the different regulators that are responsible. Um, we have a series of supervisory authorities under our Proceeds of Crime Act that are responsible for implementing all AML uh, uh, work, whether it's through shops in our high street, through banks, through DOT firms, or through online gaming firms. Um, they all understand very, very clearly what is required of them. And I don't think any firm would think for a minute that the regulators feel that they are prevented from doing their job um, or from going any further than they have to. Uh, I think it's important to have international standards and I think it's important for everyone to be aware of them and to be uh, um, implementing them uh, fully. Uh, and so, no, I, I don't think there's any issue in having these standards. I think it's a, it's a good thing. And, and, and as those standards change, which they do frequently and improve, um, not just in the DLT space uh, with the travel rule, but in other areas too, I think it's positive and I think we should all be um, complying with them. I'd like to ask you about something slightly different now. Now, is not a big, it's not a big place. You yourself mentioned uh, a while ago that you've got 15,000 people coming in every day, 9,000 of whom are, are Spanish. Is your difficulty in attracting talent, whatever that is, whether it's software developers or, or lawyers or accountants, is that ever a problem for firms looking to set up in Gibraltar? Um, it's, it's not a problem because this is a beautiful place to live in with the Mediterranean climate available to us 365 days a year. So in that respect, it's not. Is the talent readily available? No, it's not. Um, and so we have no compunction about bringing it in. So if you look at the online gaming uh, firms, they've got people working here out of that 3,500 who probably speak every language that's available in the planet. Those aren't available in Gibraltar. Um, and so we've got 25 years of experience of working with firms to help them bring in the skills that they require to be able to work from here, which is why we have that number of 15,000 people coming in because there are skills that we just don't have available. So what Gibraltar has done a long time ago, um, our government in 1988 introduced a system whereby um, Gibraltar residents uh, who qualify will have their university education paid for by the government we have to train and upskill our people to ensure that we're able to put them into the jobs that we're seeking to create. Um, so this joined up thinking approach has been there for quite some time. And therefore we do have a lot of locals uh, in many of the jobs, um, in the skilled jobs that, that, that many of these firms are requiring. But of course there are gaps in the areas that we don't. Uh, and so we issue work permits uh, for these skills to ensure that the firms that we're attracting here have the people available to them to do the work. Mm -hmm. um, so those two things work hand in hand um, and, and we are not scared about issuing work permits for the skills that aren't readily available in Gibraltar. We don't have a problem in the sense that we don't have uh, significant unemployment. The unemployment um, number is, is extremely low. Um, and so we, we don't have, like other jurisdictions do, 
have the problem of allowing people to come in when we've got people unemployed. From the point of view of a business looking to set up in Gibraltar, if they needed to bring people in, the work permit process would be expeditious, right? Yes, absolutely. We have a lot of experience on that, so yes. Now, the sectors you've got you've got going in your, in your financial services industry, you've got insurance, you've got funds, you've got you've got e-game, you've got a, a um, are there synergies between these various sectors and do you think those synergies could be accelerated by uh technological developments i'm thinking here say of tokenization maybe it's insurance funds that could could get tokenized for example how much time do you you know we all talk about synergies as though they're a great thing but actually they're much more difficult to achieve in practice than they are in uh, in principle Mm. Um, do you do you make conscious efforts to get these sectors to talk to each other and start exploring synergies uh, between what they do I'd love to be able to say yes to your question, but I think the honest answer is not enough of it. Um, If you look at where we've succeeded, online gaming firms are really technology companies. They're entirely reliant on their technology to be able to work around the world in the way that they do. If you look at the insurance firms, and as you know, we've been very successful in, in particularly motor insurance, the days of having hundreds or thousands of underwriters in the back office working out premiums are long gone. It's technology that delivers that. So we've got some 30% of the UK motor insurance market being written by Gibraltar insurance firms. We don't have thousands of underwriters. We have technology. Um, And then if you look at the blockchain space technology, if you look at much of the financial services work, technology, do they work together? Not enough would be my my honest answer. Um, But... Of course, when you're an agile jurisdiction like we are, our ability to innovate in areas where technology is predominant is self-evident from where we are and where we've come from over the past 25 years. And I think if you look back in 10 years' time, you will see that the blockchain space will be another similar space which has evolved through the use of technology. Um, But we're still short of uh, uh, software. We're still uh, short of people with experience and expertise in this area. And so uh, one of the things we've recently done um, is uh, set up the Digital Skills Academy, which is a unit specifically designed to help educate our children in the digital space um, at an earlier age uh, through the, the, you know, through, through the techniques that are available to design games from, from really just to attract interest uh, and expand knowledge at a young age to people to make them aware of the things that can be done uh, in their future careers. And I think that's a very good place for us to start to, um, to, to encourage and foster more knowledge in this area. And, and I think it's an important step. I wish we'd have done it earlier, but we've done it all, all the same. Um, and I think, I think the Digital Skills Academy will work well. The individual that set it up for us uh, was formerly the head of physics in our school, um, who trained uh, what we call Cyber Centurions. It's a competition that runs in the United Kingdom, and our schools have been winners in that uh, competition amongst all the UK schools pretty much every year for the last four years, first, second, or third. Um, both our, our, our boys' school and our girls' school have done extraordinarily well. And so we're trying to piggyback on, on the success of that uh, with the creation of this academy to enhance and encourage our training in this area. So 
Um, we need to do more, and we're beginning to, to do more, and I hope we will continue to do more. So you're obviously preparing for a, a digital future. I have one final question for you. As you've just said, uh, you know, insurance, gaming, these are really technological businesses now. You're training your young people to support those businesses in the future. But if, to take your um, timescale, if we look back 10 years, um, what do you think will have proved to be the big growth opportunities? Will it be in the sectors that you're talking about now, kind of technological intensification in insurance and in gaming? Or do you think whole new uh, asset classes and lines of business are going to open up as a result of digitization? What are the big growth well, the underlying thing, The underlying thing to everything you said is technology. Um, and, and I think one of the key aspects of the blockchain and the DLT framework is the power of that technology and what it's doing already in traditional financial services, whether it's payment processing or others. I think that will spread to other areas. We talked about that before uh, in other sectors. Um, and so I think that there are very many clever people, um, particularly in technology and around financial services, that will continue to use techniques, um, whether it's tokens, whether it's NFTs, whether it's DeFi, um, that will continue to grow and that technology will continue to be used in making what we do today quicker, more effective and cheaper to do. Um, and that is the threat for the traditional financial services businesses like banks. Um, they've got the option of Kodak not changing and taking the consequences or going with it and using it to enhance their own businesses. And so I believe there will be a gap between those that do and those that don't. Um, uh, I don't think it's going to be a, a cliff edge moment. I think it's going to be over a, a period of time. Um, but I certainly believe that there are huge opportunities uh, in the financial services space, as indeed in others, by adopting and adapting this technology to those particular sectors too. So I think it's a very exciting time ahead. Um, and I think the change of the last 10 years is nothing compared to the change of the next 10 years. Albert Isola, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you, Dominic. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you.